Bible. Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is April 20th, 2016, and uh, this is our normal monthly uh, edition of Faith and Practice. Uh, this is the 24th edition with Dr. Joseph Piper, who is the president is of Greenville edition. Seminary, and, and he, got to me bef- he got to it before I could get there. But this is, as it were, a special edition this month, because we've actually done two in April, uh, because we have so many questions and, and we want to try to clear up some of them at least. We're not going to get to all of them uh, today, but which is good. So continue to send questions into us. Uh, there's multiple ways to do that. I have written a new uh, blog post on the ConfessingOurHope.com website, uh, which summarizes uh, how to get questions to us. It's very simple. And, of course, if you do, and Dr. Piper uses your program or uses your question on the program, then you will receive a $10 discount coupon code to the Banner of Truth store. So um, it's a great way to build your library, as it were, and um, also get great theologically uh, driven answers as well. So um, take advantage of those things. Now, Dr. Pipe, it's good to have you on, and uh, we want to get right to the questions that are on tap for today. And our first one is, is rather lengthy, and I Ms. think we talked about... Oh, that's right. Thank you. Go ahead. Father, we bless your name that you are a great and glorious God, clothed in splendor and majesty, dwelling in light, unapproachable. And yet, Lord, you've given us Christ, and through him, because you have pardoned our sins, constituted us righteous, you have manifested yourself to us. And he, our prophet, uh, speaks to us by his spirit through the word. We confess that we need your illumination to do anything and particularly with spiritual value. So we ask that the Spirit now will bless in our understanding and in the answers that we give that will be clear and biblical. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. All right, now our first question uh, this morning is is very lengthy, and so Dr. Piper is going to summarize it because I'm wordy. (laughs) And so he'll do a lot better job of it than I will anyway. So, Dr. Piper, uh, please. All right. Uh, this one comes, uh, he left his name off, but this is the fellow that I've pushed his book. Um, he um, recently attended a Roman Catholic uh, wedding, uh, actually participated as a groomsman, uh, was ignorant of what was going to be required, and was uh, instructed at the day of the wedding that he was to genuflect before the altar, before he read the scripture and the way back to the seat. He did what he was told to do, but that's led him to think in terms of participating in such a wedding again. So his question, first question is this, is there any fundamental difference between participating in a religious ceremony and simply attending a religious ceremony? And I would say, yes, there is. I would not participate in a Roman Catholic wedding or any kind of Roman Catholic or other uh, pagan uh, religious uh, ceremonies. Nor, if I attend a Roman Catholic ceremony, would I take uh, Mass. But I do think it is not inappropriate to attend Roman Catholic funerals and weddings uh, out of of, of love uh, for the people, uh, respect for them. So, I know I have friends in Italy that make it a point of attending the different. Roman Catholic ceremonies of their families, children, and whatever, in order to bear witness uh, to them. They never participate in any of the, what we would call, pagan uh, activities. So, 
that would be the first part of the uh, of the question. But I couldn't be in a wedding even like that. I would have to say, you know, thank you, but because you all are observing uh, ceremonies that I think are anti-Christ and anti-biblical, I'll come, I'll support you, but uh, in conscience, I could not do that. Now, in a related note, uh, your brother-in-law, my brother-in-law is just converted to Eastern Orthodoxy, had his two young children, one and three, baptized. After doing some research on Eastern Orthodox view of baptism, it appears to me they believe that baptism actually cleanses a person from his sins, justifying him in some way, seemingly much like Roman Catholic baptism. Although my wife and I were not invited to my brother-in-law by him to attend the baptism, had he invited us to attend, I do not know if I would have gone since I could not in good conscience affirm and support Eastern Orthodox understanding of baptism. Is that going too far? Is that being too divisive? Ultimately, I seek always to honor the Lord while also not unnecessarily damaging my relationship with friends and family. Well, I uh, would say that this one becomes much more a matter of conscience, and we would not want to bind one another's conscience. Some could attend the service, as my friends in Italy do, but not participate, but be there to support the family. And they've borne consistent witness to their view of baptism. Others uh, couldn't. So if you can go with a clear conscience and not participate uh, and able to bear witness to your friends or relatives through that process, then I think it's okay. If your conscience condemns you, then I wouldn't do it. Well, very good questions and um, ones that we run into from time to time and need to have a ready answer for. Now, if I, as you're talking, I'm trying to figure out what I mess I've made of things, but um, I, I think, okay, yeah, it, it, no. When I was 12 years old, we Abraham's did, question. We did that. We didn't. I, I crossed wasn't it this, out. Wasn't this Pentecostalism? Well, let's do it. Yeah, I don't I'm think not. we did it. All right, so Abraham writes in from Boise, Idaho, on baptism and oneness Pentecost in a oneness Pentecostal church. He says, when I was 12 years old, my parents were ev evangelized by a minister of a oneness Pentecostal church. In spite of their anti-Trinitarian doctrine, the Lord graciously saved me after hearing the gospel in that church context. I was baptized by one of its ministers. However, to this day, I've been uncomfortable with the fact that the baptismal formula... Um, Baptism in Jesus' name. Sorry, there's some odd characters in there. My question is whether this would be considered invalid baptism and need to be baptized. We probably did do this, Abraham. You don't get two books <laughs> if we did it. But it's an important enough question to do it again sure. anyway. Uh, no, I think this is a cult. It's an anti-Trinitarian church. So regardless, <laughs> Mormon baptism is Trinitarian in name. We would not accept that either. So I, I would encourage you to talk to your pastor and to seek to receive Christian baptism. Mm -hmm. All right. So the next one's on the subject of sanctification. Are we on the same page over there? I think yep. we are. Great. Okay, so William writes in from San Antonio, Texas. The subject is sanctification. He asks, how was a believer's sanctification in the Old Covenant different from how we are sanctified today in the New Covenant? Did they experience union with Christ? We contend that there is one covenant of grace, but could Old Testament believers, quote, put on Christ, unquote, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, or strive for the holiness without which no man will see the Lord? 
Are we more privileged than they and thus under more obligation for personal sanctification? William, that's a very insightful question. And uh, yes, we are more privileged than they and we are under um, more obligation for personal sanctification. Even though there's one covenant of grace, the confession reminds us that uh, it was administered differently in the Old uh, Covenant or the Old Testament from the New. It had types and shadows. And of course, the New being the fulfillment, as the writer of Hebrews points out, there were some things finally accomplished in the New through the work of Christ that were only in picture, such as the remission of sins. With daily sacrifices, there's a once and for all sacrifice. And as Christ says in John chapter 7, some unique giving of the Holy Spirit that is connected to his ascension, which he makes clear in his ministry in, for example, John 14 through 16. And I think you put your finger on it that uh, the Spirit brings us into union with Christ, and that's the exalted uh, mediator. There could have been no union with Christ uh, in the Old Covenant. And so uh, the distinction I make, and there are different answers to this, the distinction I make is that in the Old Covenant, the Spirit regenerated and sanctified, but did not permanently indwell. He would indwell people appointed to special office, particularly prophets and kings. So when Saul lost the Spirit, it wasn't his sanctifying spirit he lost, the Holy Spirit who anointed him for office is what he lost, and I think that's what David is praying then in Psalm 51. Mm -hmm. So in the New Covenant, the Spirit is in us as the Spirit of Christ, bringing us into a vital, mystical, living union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says that the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that's work in us. Jesus also said that least uh, in the kingdom will be greater than John the Baptist. And what he's getting at is our spiritual privileges. So we may not take refuge in a Samson or a David in their sin. Uh, we uh, should excel the greatest of the old covenant saints. That should be our passion, our desire, pleading with God daily to revive us and fill us with the Spirit. Now, now maybe you mentioned this, Dr. Piper, and I wasn't paying attention, which, um, well, anyway. We also have the, the complete canon of Scripture. Um, we have God's revelation now. Um, in its fullness to us, uh, as opposed to the people of old. Not to minimize that, but but I think we have all of. We have the, much more light. We have that's much more saying. light. Yes, yes, than, right. than the days. Of old. You might want to listen. I have a sermon on Job one one, where I get into some of that. Why we should surpass Job, whom God said was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Mm-hmm. All right, William, very good question. Thank you for listening. Long-time listener and um, always encouraging um, to, to see your questions. Uh, Rolando writes in, I think I said that correctly, from, um, from California, and the subject is on limited atonement. And he writes, Dr. Pipe, I'm a believer who holds to the Reformed faith by conviction. As I've told many over the years, I agree with Whitfield that we are all born Arminians and that it is a grace that turns us into Calvinists. In other words, I understand the term Calvinist to mean nothing more than a biblical Christian. Anyway, I currently attend a church that is not Reformed because, sadly, there are no Reformed churches near my home. Our senior pastor, while he claims to, be, claims to believe in a sovereign God, denies limited atonement and that Christ died for his elect alone. In his own words, 
I just don't find that anywhere in Scripture. So my question is this. We know that the attacks against this particular doctrine are nothing new as the carnal man believes that he is more loving and more merciful than God. So how can I, as a Reformed believer, respond to someone, even a pastor, that while it may not be spelled out limited atonement in Scripture, it is in fact a truth taught by Scripture? I ask this question because at times, as I'm sure you understand, it is hard to remain patient with others when addressing this issue. Thank you, Rolando. When you are in a difficult situation, um, and I appreciate your humility in, in the situation, the Scripture does, I think, directly teach uh, the uh, particular nature of the atoning work of Christ. He says he came for his own, those whom the Father have given unto him. He prays not for the world, he prays for them. There's also a lot of inferences that are very important, uh, the nature of the atonement. Uh, if God truly saves us, and you look at words like reconciliation, propitiation, expiation, if, if God's done these things, then the person who has, for whom Christ has done those things is not going to hell. If he does, God has exercised double jeopardy. So what ends up at the end of the day is that those who believe in a limited uh, do not believe in limited atonement, have limited the atonement quite drastically because it doesn't save. And then they have to add works. Either the belief or something of the person who receives Christ finishes that work. So the very nature of the atonement. Uh, Revelation 5, it says that Christ purchased with his blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So there, there are a lot of text. Uh, you could get, um, I would get uh, Murray's Redemption Accomplished and Applied and read his chapter on the atonement. If you want a bit more, you could probably get my lecture from Christ and Salvation on uh, the atonement as well, where I go through a lot of the verses as well as some of the verses that are used against the doctrine. Uh, you, you need to be praying about this um, and don't become argumentative. Uh, you might give him a, a, a couple of books to read, ask him, if you will, to read them, and then just pray for him. Yeah. And pray for a uh, for discovering a, a Reformed church in your area. Very good. Thank you for the question, and keep writing in as you're able. Uh, Mark writes in from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and this is a question related to confessions and holy days. Uh, he says that the Directory for the Public Worship of God, uh, published in Edinburgh, Edinburgh in 1645, notes that the only holy days for Christians is every Sabbath. That seems correct in line with the New Testament and consistent with the regulative principle for worship or of worship. Every first day of the week, as Christians, we gather for word and sacrament because Christ rose on the first day of the week. Why is it then that so many, most, question mark, <laughs> Reformed churches resume the Romish recognition uh, of holy days like Christmas and Easter and even all of what is called Holy Week, especially when the winter timing of Christmas is very unlikely historically accurate and the timing of Easter is based on pagan celebrations. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, first, let me correct you. The timing of Easter, the timing of Easter is not based on pagan uh, celebrations. We know exactly uh, when Easter was because the Passover was uh, regulated by uh, the new moon. So uh, we have no problem with the date of Easter. I basically agree with you 
that we have one holy day a week. That is the position, I think, of Scripture and of the um, uh, at least of the public worship of God published by Edinburgh or by the assembly in Edinburgh in 1645. I personally am opposed to uh, the observance of a religious calendar. Uh, the little I've seen, it crept into the Reformed churches at the Synod of Dort where the divines, the theologians wanted to remove it. The state asked them to leave it for a period of time to help in transition, and transition never occurred. It's been much more prevalent. In fact, it's required in the uh, churches that come out of the Dutch Reformed background. In Presbyterian churches, it has not been observed a great deal until recently. Uh, here where we are in, and I was surprised when I moved here over 18 years ago that so many of our good churches that have regulated worship did have Holy Week activities and communion on Good Friday and even Monday, uh, Thursday uh, uh, services. And I, I don't quite know how that originated in this part of the world. My approach, though, is a bit different. As a pastor, I took counsel from Martin Lloyd-Jones. It would be foolish not to preach on Advent at Christmas time and Resurrection at Easter time when those are the two Sundays a year that most of the people coming to church are thinking about those topics. So although my practice was to do consecutive expository preaching, I would break the series and preach an Advent sermon and a Resurrection sermon, often take an opportunity to use Old Testament prophecies to instruct people um, into the fullness of Scripture with respect to that. I recently preached a Bible conference that was arranged by the church around the last week of Christ's life. I took uh, excerpts from the end of the Gospel of Mark um, and uh, did that without any overt references uh, to Good Friday. I did preach on that Friday uh, on Christ hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm free to do that. And I'm free to attend. I believe churches are free, I should have said this first, free to have such services as long as they don't require them. Mm-hmm. Which I gets to at what I think the principle that Paul lays out in Colossians 2.16. So, um, if a church wants to have services, uh, I think that as long as they don't make them holy days and make them required services for the congregation, but times for edification, then I don't, uh, I don't have a problem with that. Now, the only one that's not on Sunday really is uh, Ascension. Uh, I'll actually be preaching an Ascension service uh, in May. Uh, along with the World Day of Prayer, they combining the two things together. Again, I don't have a problem uh, with that as long as we don't make them holy days. So, yes, an individual or a congregation may follow the calendar. I wouldn't follow the calendar. I wouldn't pastor in, in my pastorate follow the calendar. On the other hand, one that doesn't needs to make certain that periodically, for example, the Ascension, most Presbyterians have never heard a sermon on the Ascension unless the pastor was preaching through uh, Acts or Mark right, or, right. or Luke, and that's unfortunate. And so there are uh, certain uh, 
pastoral advantages as well. So I would want to make it a habit if I've not recently been through a gospel, say on the Sunday after or before, because um, again, we know the exact day of the week that Christ ascended. It was 40 days after the resurrection. So I would think pastorally I'd want to preach a sermon on ascension so my people would understand it's a very rich truth and it's clearly laid out in our, our confession. So I rambled a bit, Mark, um, but I agree with you. They're not holy days. The Sabbath is the holy day. Pastorally, though, we can make use of them, but don't require them. Follow-up question, just anticipating the possibility that this is going to come. Would you call those days worship services? Yes. I don't think that we are required that a worship service only be on the Lord's Day. Okay. But they're not mandatory. Right. So the session can't say you have to be there or else. Right. Right. Which they don't anyway. Well, they shouldn't. If they did. (laughs) But you know what I mean. (laughs) In other words, if they keep, you know, obviously absent themselves regularly from the Lord's Day worship, that would be. That would be cause of discipline, whereas this would not be. If they never showed up for one of these, it would not be cause for discipline. Okay. Yeah, just want to clarify that. Although, in taking one's membership vows, one should, at that point, inform the session. I know that you have these services not on the Lord's Day, um, and in conscience, I'm not comfortable attending them. Okay. Fair enough. All right, well, thank you for the question. And um, I don't know, I'm getting an echo, so I hope no one else is getting it, but um, I'm getting one for some reason. Our Isaac writes in from uh, from Australia, down under, and he writes on the subject of covenantal headship. If a person remains single, when, if ever, do they come out from under the covenantal headship of their father? Uh, is there a difference here between sons and daughters? Thank you, Isaac. Um, yes, I think I'll start at the end. I think there is a difference between sons and daughters. I think we see this in in the Old Covenant, in the role given to men at a certain age uh, for military and and other activities. Uh, I think a single woman does remain under the covenantal headship of her father. That does not mean that she needs to remain in the home. I think that, uh, in fact, we answered this under another question from the conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, so that she can move away, have a job, be in college, and the father should work with a local session there. But he's her protector, and he, he remains uh, her, uh, her protector. If it's a divorced woman or a widow, then she's been removed from her father's headship. She does not go back under uh, her father's headship. Although, in the instructions of the priest, it says if she wants to go back to her father's home, she may. All right. Well, very good. And thank you for the question. Um, if you go back to Faith and – well, actually – you can't go back yet because I haven't released the one <laughs> that he's referring to if you're listening live. But if you're listening to the recorded edition, you can go back. Um, it would be Faith and Practice number 23 uh, where some of these questions were dealt with. Uh, they were carryovers from our Spring Theology Conference. So uh, I think you get a fuller uh, answer on that subject there. Um, again, uh, uh, same listener writes in from Australia again uh, on the issue of elders. We're on the same page. Uh-huh. Okay, very good. Uh, he asked, does Titus 1.6 require elders to have children who are true converts? Does the requirement of this verse apply only to an, uh, to an elder's kids while they are children, or does it extend into adulthood? Good question. Yeah, quite, uh, very timely, uh, Isaac. Let me read this 
uh, verses 5 and 6 of Titus 1. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set and order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So, what does Paul mean by having children who believe? The Greek word here can mean believe or faithful. I I think that the Bible does not require an elder's children to be converted because conversion is ultimately an act of God's sovereign grace, not an act of parental faithfulness. But the Bible can require that the child living at home be covenantally faithful so that they are living according to the covenant they're living uh, in the church, they're faithful in the life of the church. Uh, maybe they didn't have not made profession of faith, but they are uh, living uh, faithful to their parents. They're not, they're not cursing, they're not fighting back, they're not getting in trouble. Now, if a high school young person begins to get in trouble, uh, drugs, alcohol, juvenile delinquency, uh, pushing back on their parents, trying to skip church, any of these things, they should be dealt with. They should be brought to the session. At that point, and I've told my children this when they were young, I would step down voluntarily if it if they were in high school not necessarily because um, I'm assuming full responsibility but because I need to be able to devote myself uh, to them before you press on because I I think I know where you're going with the rest of this answer well, but I want I then? Yeah, well <laughs> I, I but I do the, it, it you had said you would step down um, and I'm thinking of a particular situation. Um, if I step down, I would mean a leave of absence. Right. If, if but a, would you, obviously you'd communicate with your session. What if your session said no? I'm going there. Okay, very good. Okay, good. That said, that's what I told my children. The, uh, ultimately, the decision is not uh, the ministers or the elders alone. It must also be a decision of of the session. So even in that case, let's say that the 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 I think in terms of my child needing help, a ruling elder definitely should take a leave of absence, and a pastor should try to take a leave of absence. If the church can anyway afford, I don't mean step down out of the ministry. I mean take a leave. I should have said take a leave of absence and deal with the uh, with the issue. Yeah, see, so you're not talking about demitting. No, you're talking about just okay stepping. And right I shouldn't have used the word step season. down. Right. Okay. Okay. Now, the child who's gone off at college or in the work world. Mm. That is a bit different. I still think that the elder, minister, and elder teacher elder should go to the session and say, here's what my child is doing. Um, do you think I should uh, at least temporarily step down from serving? Now, what they're going to want to do is look and say, well, you know, you, you had these patterns at home. We've mentioned to them. Others have encouraged you about them. This is a result of of uh, of some things we think that, that you were doing and that, yes, we think that at least temporarily uh, you should step down. But they say, no, as we know you and have worked with you, we uh, none of us are 
completely faithful to the covenant, but we see a pattern of covenant faithfulness, and we don't think you should um, step down or take a leave of absence. So when my son was in rebellion, now he's repented, he's a deacon in an Orthodox Presbyterian church with a wonderful godly home, but when he was, when the rebellion began, I went to the board of the seminary and explained what happened and said, if you want me to uh, step down or resign from my position, I'll do so. And they dealt with that and, and uh, said they saw no need uh, to do so. So it's never an individual decision, particularly after the child has left home. But it is, uh, I think, can be an individual decision if the parent really believes I must not have any distractions right now in working with my child. But if the, you know, it might be if you're the pastor and the session says, we'll free you up, we want you to keep in the pulpit, but you know, we, we'll, we'll work with you on your schedule or whatever. Mm. So there's lots of ways to do it. Uh, but no, I don't think it means automatic demission of, um, of, of the ministry. Very good question, and thanks, thanks again for writing in. Now, um, I'm going to exercise a little bit of executive privilege here. Um, um, if you look at the next couple questions, do you yeah, see what I, I'm looking I at? Okay, I can we jump over those and get come back? Up I won't. Again. I won't. All right, then go to Sam. That's correct. Okay, so Sam writes in from um, from South Carolina. Um, he, he says, I'd like Dr. Piper to address whether or not the six days of labor are just as binding as the one day of Sabbath rest. I particularly have in mind the issues of uh, the issue of vacations, wherein it is presumed that one is not necessarily being productive, but enjoying recreations without interruption. Thank you, Sam. And actually, Sam and I have had a conversation about this since he submitted the question. The Sixth Commandment particularly says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. The six days you shall labor and do all your work is either a prescription or a concession. Now, John Murray would have interpreted this as a prescription, although I don't know that John Murray was opposed to retirement. He retired uh, from his work at Westminster Seminary. Um, or a vacation, or uh, uh, some type of recreation. So I take it as a concession. God said, "Is God said, I've given you six days to do everything, to do your uh, your calling, and if you're going to do recreation, I think when we look at a place like uh, Ecclesiastes chapter three, we see the full orbed life under uh, God's uh, sovereignty." For this is really talking about God appointing uh, these times. There's an appointed time for everything. There's a time for every event. The word translated event means delight or pleasure under heaven. Give birth, die, plant, uproot, kill, heal, tear down, build up, weep, laugh, mourn, dance, throw stones, gather stones, embrace, shun embracing, search, give up lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Time to tear apart, a time to sew together, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. And then um, Solomon will go and talk about that it's a gift of God uh, that a man uh, can see good in his work. Uh, chapter 5, here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, enjoy oneself and all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the fears of his life. 
Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward, rejoice in his labor. Uh, that is uh, a gift. Uh, 3.12, and nothing better than to rejoice, do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It's a gift of God. So I think that, um, I mean, God d- does give us the full life, and he does encourage feasting and uh, taking pleasure. He's built a beautiful world that appeals to our senses. So I think that God uh, has revealed to us that we may enjoy the world around us, keeping all things in balance and priority. Moreover, as uh, Bridges says in his book on the Christian ministry, in referring to what some of the Puritans wrote, a bow that is constantly bent is going to lose its uh, resiliency. You must unbend the bow. And so a, a, a any man in whatever his field is needs to unbend that bow. When you have children, you need to be sure you're spending time with your children, uh, relaxing and playing. So I think that what we have is a concession, and I think we also can interpret that in light of Ephesians excuse me, Isaiah 58, telling us that we're to abstain from our work, our pleasures, which the confession and E.J. Young take as recreations Mm -hmm. and unnecessary thoughts about pleasures and recreations. So the confession obviously uh, believes that the six days includes recreation as well as work. Yeah, very good question. And and, um, Sam, thanks for writing in and um, submitting it. Now I'm going to jump right to the bottom one, and then we'll come back up so we're on the same page. Sir? Go back up to what? To the ones I skipped. Well, no, we got... Do you want me to move on to yeah, the we'll newest? Yeah, first. Newer, newer ones. Okay. Yeah. Or the newer, older ones. <laughs> I can't tell anymore. <laughs> anyway, Chris writes in on the question of worship and Bible translations. Um, he writes in from England, so thank you for listening across the pond. He says, a question about worship. Say a church has decided to use the ESV as the main translation to be read and preached from on a Sunday. Say someone prefers the NASB or Geneva Bible and usually takes that translation to church to follow the reading, the readings and preaching. Do you, think, uh, do you think doing some sort of small mental gymnastics and trying to reconcile what is being heard and read impedes worship or the profitable hearing of the word? Uh, what if the preferred translation taken to church is the Greek New Testament? Is that just showing off or a useful way of checking what is read and preached? Conversely, say a church has decided upon a translation and a visiting preacher prefers an alternative translation. Should he accommodate himself to the local custom on that one occasion or does the visiting preacher's personal preference trump the local customs? Thanks for what is always an enjoyable and profitable podcast. So good to hear Dr. Peppa pray before the program. All right, <laughs> Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's a little rebuke from my host here. Um, this is kind of three parts. For church, to, I, I think it's good for a church to uh, pick a uh, translation, make those Bibles available, and the chairs are the pews. But, again, that doesn't bind the, the conscience of those who are coming. So if, and I always encourage churches to choose the NASB, uh, but uh, I understand, for example, in Britain that many prefer the NASB, but because it's called the American Standard is why the English Standard Version is being used in churches. And that makes sense to me culturally. 
But there's no problem in reading another version. Uh, the confession, the catechism actually says that we are to examine what we hear by the word. So uh, I uh, often find that the translation is used where I attend church. Uh, I find it to be a bit lacking. Uh, and it's good to, to know that. And sometimes the sermon might go a little bit of a different direction. But if, if the pastor is preaching truth from the text he has, I'm to submit to that truth. But it's good for me to understand um, what the text is saying. I don't think taking a Greek and Hebrew Bible to church is, is showing off, uh, and nor is it simply a way of checking what is read and preached. It's a way of, of, of continuing to build vocabulary and stay fresh, as well as the checking. And that's I take mine, and that's why I know when the particular version that's used in our church, um, I, I sometimes marvel at where in the world uh, they get some of their uh, uh, translations. But I think that's that's uh, okay to do that. Now, when you're invited to preach, I try always to remember to find out from the church ahead of time, or if I know, to read the text from uh, the version that they use. What most will say in your preaching, you know, uh, normally I won't have to change, but sometimes the text, for example, this past Sunday night, uh, I was doing Psalm 119. Um, the ESV translates the word ordinance or judgment rules. And the Hebrew is uh, judgments or ordinances, which I think is God's revelation concerning God's providential acts. It's not just rules. So having the I had both Bibles open in front of me. It threw me for a minute, though, and I had to go back to, to the others. So you need to be aware of doing that where there would be a, a difference. But when I'm doing cross-references, I'm going to use my Bible simply because I'm familiar with it, uh, and I know the translation is going to be actually demonstrating what I'm trying to say, But which nobody has a problem with that. But I would do the readings from... Uh, the text that the session has appointed. Yeah, very good question. I've actually experienced this um, in a particular context where um, they asked me to preach in the King James. Uh, and I do that. And and I've never, I, I don't, I just don't preach in the King James, but the elders asked me to preach in the King James. That's what they preferred. That's what they wanted. So guess what? Good do it. You. Let's go ahead and do Isaac's other two questions. You sure? Yeah. Okay. Since they're old. All right, let's uh, let me scroll back up here real quick. And all right, so Isaac again. Um, by the way, Isaac, um, we're we're doing like four of your questions today. Um, send four more in next month, but understand you only get one coupon code. And that's really a reminder for everybody. I've posted <laughs> this. I've I've actually had this question come to me privately. You can't send me twenty questions and get twenty coupon codes. All right. So if you send me twenty, I'm thrilled, but you're going to get one. So just so you know how... Maybe how we, you give them one of your new books, Bill. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting books now that I don't even know why I'm getting them. Um, anyway, that's just look for another day. All right, so um, Isaac um, writes in, um, this is on pastoral care and, uh, care and, and, and medical conditions. Uh, he says, Jay Adams makes the claim that a lot of sin these days is excused off as being a medical issue. 
In pastoral ministry, how do you responsibly make the call between whether the person you are caring for is afflicted by a medical issue or a sin issue? Oof. Okay. You know, the way you put it makes it really easy. If something violates any of God's commandments, it's a sin issue. But I don't think that's really what you intend to ask. So uh, if a person is getting angry or they've got anxiety, uh, it's a sin. And that means they're responding inappropriately uh, to circumstances. Now, they could be responding inappropriately to physical circumstances. Uh, A lack of sleep or that time of the month does not excuse the sinful response, but the person needs to be aware that because of a physical condition, I'm going to tend to be more on edge, impatient, quick-tempered, or whatever. So, and that's also where the Bible says love covers a multitude of sin, and that we're to bear along with each other. So if I know that in certain conditions, uh, my wife might respond in a certain way, or she knows I might respond in a certain way, we don't take that to heart. We simply gloss over it and and uh, go on. Now, you know, Lord willing that the, one of us that's done that will also ask forgiveness if it comes you know, comes to mind. But um, so, yeah, we don't measure behavior by medical conditions, but by the law. But we there can be medical causes. I've given two physical causes. There can be other uh, medical causes for um, not causes, occasions for sin. Then there are certain types of behavior that Adams would say this behavior is, in fact, a spiritual problem, uh, and others would say it's a medical problem. Let me give one clearer example before we go that way, and that is uh, alcoholism. Drunkenness is a sin that condemns one to hell. You don't go to hell for high blood pressure. But um, the medical model would say that drunkenness is an illness. And at that point, we reject the medical model. But we also need to understand that addiction can become a physical problem. And it can be dealt with spiritually, but also physically. So then uh, what Adams would say is that there are certain types of behavior that would uh, not be in this third category of emotional aberrations. It's either physical or spiritual. Schizophrenia, paranoia, uh, these types of things that, all I think the paranoia at the end of the day is, according to Solomon, uh, the wicked fear when no one pursues. Um, But let's just say, um, so some of these things could have physical causes. Lack of sleep can create schizophrenia. Those were the studies that Adams himself did. Um, So as I understand, and particularly with the advances of biblical counseling, but Adams himself insisted upon this, you always start with working with a physician that uh, you have confidence in is not going to just throw drugs at something. And make sure there's not physical problems, postpartum depression. Let's take depression. I think that's a good example. Some percentage of depression is a result of sin, but all depression is not a result of sin. And so we have to begin doing a, uh, 
an examination. Uh, is it hormones? Is it lack of sleep? Is it postpartum depression? Whatever, and uh, discover. Once those things are ruled out, then the pastor can begin to work on, all right, is this uh, proper guilt or improper guilt? Are you living in sin? Are you living in fearful lives or whatever? So mm. it's good to have, but if you don't have a physician that's going to cooperate, you still need to try to do those things yourself um, um, in terms of you can't do a physical exam. But always you know, don't just assume that depression is caused by sin, but don't do like some do and say it's never caused by sin. I still think some probably uh, majority causes of depression are sinful. I think that Ed Welch's book, The Stubborn Darkness, is a pretty balanced approach to the Christian and, and depression. Have you read um, David Murray's book on... Yeah, okay. Uh, I did want to segue uh, it, it nicely. Let's just say, no, I've not. But he, the address he gave at the conference here was the foundation of that. And I think he caricatures Adam's position in terms of okay. medical advice. Yeah. That's all I would want to say at that point. Well, it's a good segue, too, to um, highlight um, for two weeks um, the, the fourth-year students at Greenville Seminary um, have an intensive, and it's, it's, and it's intensive, uh, two weeks um, with Dr. George Scipione. He is the um, uh, professor of counseling at... Um, uh, it's Pittsburgh. in Pittsburgh. Reform Thank you. And um, and he talks extensively about this. What Dr. Piper just mentioned as a pastor, um, there are going to be situations where you're you're going to want to have a man um, who is medically uh, trained uh, Christian man, uh, preferably um, that you may have to refer people to um, to try to get to the bottom of some of these things because it gets very naughty, as he put it. So. Um, but so it segues nice. We do we actually deal with that here at the seminary uh, students um, for two solid weeks in the classroom, back and forth on these subjects. So, um, just a way to promote the school out there. Now, um, do we have time? I yeah. have um, about four minutes. You didn't start on time. You're going to stop. Early. Well, I'm. I'm uh, oh, you're right. You start at twenty after. You're right. I'm sorry. I started the recording way earlier this time, so I wouldn't forget. All right, so the next question, same uh, listener. This is on the Gospels and the genre. Uh, he says, when we read something, or uh, when we read something, our expectations are shaped by the genre of what we read. When we read a newspaper, we hopefully get facts focused on reports of current events. When we read poetry, we understand that devices like metaphors are in use, and so we don't take them literally. What genre are the Gospels, and how should that shape our expectations as we read them? Okay, the Gospels... Let's say they are theological history. They are the record of the, of the life, work, and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they're not simply given to give us uh, four biographies of Christ or simply four parallel accounts. Uh, each gospel writer has particular points that he wants to make about uh, Christ, person, teaching, uh, death, and resurrection. So he's going to arrange his material. Uh, now, there are no contradictions at the end of the day between the Gospels, uh, but we have to understand that they'll look at a story from a different perspective. So there might be one blind man or one demon-possessed man in one account, two in the other. The man that said there just one was one wasn't misleading. He simply wants to focus on the singularity of that event. Well, the other one wants us to see something of its comprehensive nature. So uh, 
and the practical result of that is we tell the students here is that when you take the students through Mark, when you're preaching through Mark, don't go and bring in something from a parallel passage that's not in your passage and preach on that. You might illustrate with it, but don't, don't bring in a section because Mark left it out for a particular reason. Mark emphasized what he wants to emphasize. So they are history. They're theological history. They're not just biography. Theological history, and they're really focusing on uh, the gospel, on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, great. Thank you for the questions. Questions, Isaac, um, down in um, down under, in in Australia. Now, I'm want to make sure I'm on the same wavelength here. I'm trying to keep track as carefully as I can. I think we're on to. Ecclesiastes 5. Yes, we are. Okay, so uh, this comes in from Virginia in um, Brazil. You're going to be there. I am. Next month, actually. I'm going to be with Virginia and her husband, her father, mother. Outstanding. uh, She writes in, uh, Dear Dr. Piper, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 5, Solomon gives us some practical counseling. Do you agree that he's talking about the public worship in this passage when he speaks about sacrifices, our mouth and vows? All right, let me read the passage. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they're doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should not pay. They should vow and not pay. So, uh, Virginia, I think that the answer is yes, the primary focus is on vows, but vows here seem to be a part of corporate worship or public worship. And so I believe that uh, the general principle is um, – Come to God with a thoughtful and reverent uh, heart um, and worship him from the heart. But the particular focus, I would say, is on don't be hasty or impulsive to bring up a matter in the presence of God. That would have to do with taking vows, I think, in the presence of God. Okay. Thank you, Virginia, for writing in. and. Keep writing in. I know you um, are a longtime listener to the program, and we do thank you for listening. She's probably listening right now. Probably. Um, all right, so we're skipping that one. I, we did this one. Kinda, I'm, we did this one. I'm sorry. Uh, it's, I, I thought I had everything straight, and, well, I can make excuses, but it won't matter. Um, there was an on the – what you had on the website was another one by Virginia, so I don't know what's uh, what's going on here. What you've printed is not what you had. All right, skip over, Bill, to um, after Bible translations. Uh, what would make baptisms legitimate? From, again, Why from, don't you read it? Because I can't find you to uh, find it. Does, does the name come before the question? Yes. Okay. Mark again. Uh, according to Reformed Confessions, what would make a baptism be legitimate or, as it were, illegitimate? Well, I think one of the things that's missed in the discussion is it must be 
uh, performed by uh, a lawfully ordained minister. That's why that we here uh, reject Roman Catholic baptism uh, because it uh, is not performed by a lawfully ordained minister. We don't accept their credentials. We wouldn't transfer their ordination. We don't accept members by transfer. They have to make a profession of faith. Now, in addition to that, it should be a Trinitarian uh, baptism. Uh, but we're not depending upon the life of the man. He could be lawfully ordained and be unconverted. He could be a hypocrite. That would not affect the baptism. If he's lawfully ordained, it's done in a proper order under the, the, uh, under the church, and it's Trinitarian. I think those are the things that, that we're looking for. Coupled with a, in a church that knows the gospel. That's why I said earlier, you know, it's not just the, the Unitarian Pentecostals, but Mormons, uh, any of these cults also, they might even have Trinitarian baptism, but they don't have lawfully ordained ministers. They don't have the gospel. Right. So we got about seven minutes just so you, to give you an update on where we are. Um, that's according to the live counter, so it's oh, right. Okay. Um, really not the recording. Um, but anyway... How do you respond then? Um, obviously, in our circles, uh, this this gets discussed. Um, I mentioned to you off air that I was surprised last night this didn't come up in my exam. Um, I don't know why it didn't. Maybe it will eventually, but it didn't. So, but we know of men who have graduated from Greenville Seminary, but we've known of other men who have said, "No, I, you know, I, I will not accept the Roman Catholic baptism. It's not baptism because it's not done by a lawfully ordained minister of the gospel." Uh, Trent. Vatican I pretty much makes that plain, that they don't believe the gospel, if the gospel is justification by faith alone. Uh, what would your counsel be to a man who is forced then to take an exception to the standards on that subject? And we've dealt with this. Okay. Um, well, you're using a lot of technical language here. Let me uh, back up. I didn't have the confession open as we, we had skipped ahead to this question. Uh, chapter 27 of the sacraments. The grace which is exhibited entered by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Neither does the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention, that's what I'm saying in my own words, of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit. The words of institution, which contain together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise to worthy uh, receivers. And then under baptism, it goes on to uh, uh, paragraph 2 of chapter 28. The outward element to be used in the sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. So those are the two passages to which I am referring. Now, in the Presbyterian Church in America, it would be quite invalid to require man to take exception because we actually have a uh, General Assembly report that was approved that allows um, every session to make that decision uh, and to work with the people that are coming in. So in that case, I would think the people who are calling him need to uh, properly uh, lodge an appeal, a complaint with the court about what is, is, is being done. So I do not think it, one should be forced to take an exception, particularly to something not only historically has been held to by a portion of the church, but actually has been approved by, by the denomination. 
And so the particular instance you've mentioned, I told the person at the time, your denomination has already made a ruling on this. They cannot require you to take an exception. What he should have done was gotten the minutes out uh, of the assembly and shown them that you know the assembly says I may hold this position. Can the can the potential uh, can the candidate because at that point that's what he is can he have his the, the he's being forced to take this exception he doesn't believe it's a valid exception can he have that recorded in the minutes yes and then the, the assembly would have to look over it as well okay so it would be removed at that point i would think and that would be another good thing he should have done yep okay yeah these are good questions um dr pepper's right i got a little technical with my language there but um Sorry, I just came. <laughs> so an exception, which I didn't correct, an exception in our, uh, in the PCA, um, a man's supposed to believe the doctrines of the confession of faith. If there's a doctrine with which he cannot concur, he takes an exception. And the confession of faith doesn't even teach this. And again, what's interesting about this particular situation is that the, the vow to the, what we call the Book of Church Order, which is our governing principles, is not that you believe everything in it, but you find it to be consistent with scripture so there's nothing in our standards that ever say that a man has to accept roman catholic baptism so for those reasons as well nobody should be forced to say well i'm differing with the standards when i would not baptize when i would baptize a roman catholic just for clarity it's not rebaptism. Nope. we baptize a roman catholic convert because we believe that they have not been baptized the same way that earlier question about the person in the one Pentecostal church or a Mormon. That's right. Well, these are great questions, and um, do appreciate all of those that have um, um, that have sent in questions. Um, even though I've, I have no idea what I did. Um, it, well, that's okay. We can a, we can finish, and then we can start a new. Slide. Been a little disorderly in my own uh, system this month or this week for some reason. Well. I could offer excuses, but they won't matter much. Um, do you well, have I congratulate one you Bill. Have... He had his written exams for ordination, and last night he had his committee exam, which he passed. And we, we thank the Lord for that. Mm -hmm. Do you have another one there? I do. We have about two minutes. All right. These are quick. Not that we have to end in two minutes, but we, okay. we actually have two hours. If you this is from Kevin I, I, in Raleigh. Uh, about the patriarchs and the law. Did the patriarchs understand the essence of the Ten Commandments before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai? Did they observe the Sabbath? Yes, they understood the essence of the Ten Commandments. The law of God's written on the heart, so the regenerate would have had uh, a grasp of it. Plus, uh, the oral uh, revelation would have been passed on you, when you recognize that Abraham was not that far from Moses, or from Noah. And Noah wasn't that far from Adam in terms of the, of the lifetimes of the people. And yes, I believe that they would have known the Sabbath. Um, and I think that language in Exodus 16 shows us uh, that that was in their memory because uh, God didn't institute a new commandment with the manna. He simply reminded them that on the Sabbath they shouldn't be collecting uh, manna. But it was the grace of God to record uh, in a permanent form, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And that was a wonderful act of God's grace. And then Kevin asked again about social justice. How do we understand social justice in the current climate? Well, that's a, a bit ambiguous, uh, Kevin. Um, the church is not about the business of social justice. The church is about the business 
of preaching the gospel, teaching her people how to live lives that are blameless and righteous. So just as we've talked in previous podcasts about the doctrine of the spirituality of the church, the church is not picketing the abortion clinic, but the church is preaching against abortion. And church members can be discipled to go, if that's a ministry they feel called uh, to get involved in, and get involved in that. So it's not the church's responsibility to uh, press for a social issue, whatever, uh, for correction of things, but to preach the gospel and the law and apply it to God's people. And then they and their callings will go out and apply those principles in the culture. Yes, very, very, very good questions, even though I don't have them in front of me. I don't know why. Um, but thank you for all the questions that were written in. Um, and, and Dr. Pepe has, has um, done a great job, I think, getting through them and making my life easier so I can clean the slate off here and start So we did get fresh. caught up with our second, uh, our special broadcast, so we start now with a new slate. New slate, okay. And if somehow you sent Bill a question and I didn't answer it, which means we're not really caught up, please let him know. Actually, there is one other one that came in on Twitter. You want me to start that fresh for 25? Yes. Let's do that. Well, what is it? Uh, it's it's in Jesus' teaching on divorce. Why does he use the word fornication instead of adultery oh, right. and not that include on, desertion? You didn't print it, but that was on the – it had come before today. Yep. I think because he means more than adultery. He means sexual immorality. But Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 7. He's adding the principle of desertion. As an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, Christ was speaking to one context. Paul was speaking to another. Paul was given a divine command as well. That's right. Good question. Built on the idea, though, that in Exodus, that a man owed his wife conjugal rights, uh, food, and uh, shelter. And so you see the failure, to, and if he didn't do that, she was free. And that's the same as desertion. So Paul was basically applying an Old Testament principle. That's right. Well, again, great questions this month or twice this month. Um, and so let me just remind everybody how uh, to send questions. It's simple. Confessingourhope.com. There's a form right there. Click on it. Uh, key in your question, long, short, who cares? Send it, and we will get it, and we will. I will add it, hopefully, Lord willing, in a more orderly manner this next month um, so Dr. Piper can address it without having to correct me all the way through out it. But um, that's the easiest way. There's other ways to do it. It's all the information is on the website at confessingourhope.com. Let me just quickly uh, tell you what is coming up on the program. Um, I've actually been uh, – confirming a, a broadcast as we're doing this one um, with a guest so and, and it is confirmed so um, coming up on the program um, next week um, uh, Mr. Adam Harris and Benjamin Wantrop they're both graduating seniors of Greenville Seminary will be in uh, in studio to have a, a candid conversation about life in seminary life uh, uh, you know why do they come to Greenville what are their plans for the future what has the Lord been teaching and doing with them um, over these last four or five years. So it'll be a really good discussion. Adam has been a resident student um, uh, his entire time, and Mr. Wantrop has been both distance and residence, so you're going to get a really good flavor of both aspects of what Greenville Seminary offers here uh, in order to educate and train men 
from the ministry. The week after that, Dr. Shaw, he's the professor of Old Testament here at the seminary, will be on the program to talk about Bible translations and related issues surrounding that. So um, it'll be a fuller discussion even of some of the things we talked about today about preachers and different translations in the pulpits and that kind of thing. And then um, the week after that, uh, Dr. Piper will return again for his normal faith and practice uh, segment. This is one that I've already had recorded, so... Um, it, it, that will be coming out in May, uh, early part of May. And then at the end of the month, uh, Jeff Gleason, he is the pastor at Cliffwood Presbyterian Church, will be on every year. We try to um, uh, help uh, him and the men that organize the, the evening of confessional concern and prayer that is held at the PCA General Assembly. Um, so we help promote that and get information out as to what they're going to be talking about and um, at that event. So those are the things that are currently scheduled um there's a few others that i haven't completely nailed down yet as far as dates but those will be released on the website confessingourhope.com so until then would you thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless